and good morning to everyone. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, today ends our series, After Your Heart, which began on July the 12th, with Dr. Hagen giving the first message on David, a man after God's own heart, and it continued throughout the summer. Uh, it's really a character study on the life of David. Now you'll notice that today's message is different from Dr. Hagen's title by virtue of a punctuation change. His was a declarative statement. Today's message is in the form of a question, an interrogatory, if you will. David, a man after God's own heart? We've been provided with several examples, many situations that proved David would prove to be just that, that he revealed his heart, a heart toward God and a heart toward his fellow man. I was thinking about his friendship with Jonathan, his compassion, loving kindness with his son, Mephibosheth. He recognized Saul as God's anointed king. And for the most of, in most of his life, as Larry Kramer mentioned in a couple of messages ago, that he was conscience stricken most of his life. He sought to please God. And he had all the characteristics that we admire most in a man after God's own heart. He was courageous, volunteering to take on Goliath. He was jealous for God's name. He exhibited a righteous indignation at Goliath's blasphemous taunts. He was a man of faith, loyal even to Saul. He was a great warrior, truly a man after God's own heart who relied on God to bring Israel their many victories over their enemies who looked to wipe them off the face of the earth. With very few ex exceptions in the scripture, we see how faithfully and how honorably David faced every challenge. He endured every valley period in his life and he overcame so many obstacles and setbacks. Why? Because of his reliance on God. From a shepherd boy, the least in his family, he would become the anointed king of Israel. And that's where we find David at this point in his life and the basis for today's message. After Saul's death on Mount Gilboa, uh, a battle in which David did not participate in, David became the anointed king of Judah for about seven and a half years, and then eventually over all of Israel. The kingdom is now united, it's consolidated, and David established Jerusalem as its capital. You might say that David's at the pinnacle of his own power and his own popularity, a kind of a personal golden age for him uh, at this time in his life. In the words of Dr. J.D. Greer, he had this to say, he said, life is actually pretty good for David. If there were stock in David Incorporated, it would be through the roof. In short, David was living a blessed life. But now we come to 2 Samuel 11. Let me begin by saying this about 2 Samuel 11. Sometimes the heart wants what it wants. Sometimes the heart gets what it wants. But there are often times when the heart doesn't always want what it gets. And this account in 2 Samuel is one of the most shocking, sad, and sobering moments in all the Bible. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan said in, in the whole of Old Testament literature, there is no chapter more tragic or full of solemn or warning than this. We look to the Bible for truth, and God never disappoints us in that respect. God is forthright. He reveals the events and the lives of biblical characters, both the good and the bad, when they acted righteously and unrighteous, when they acted and participated in holiness and ungodliness. 
He doesn't attempt to make someone look good or to cover up a fault. As one person said, he isn't interested in yesterday's resume. In fact, David, who had a better resume than him? So in truth, this chapter is a horror trap chapter because it's about one of our biblical heroes, one of the great spiritual leaders in the Old Testament, and he's going to fall mightily. He's going to to fall from, from triumph to trouble. His name, a reverent name, would now be reprehensible. The happiness that he had would now be heartache. The man who was under God's blessing would now be under judgment because of his sin. And his sin stands out. I mean, here it is 2020, and we're still talking about David's sin with Bathsheba. Uh, it's a, it, it shocks us to the core. It's about stealing, it's about adultery, it's about lies, it's about murder, it's about cover-up. It's laden with calculated treachery. It's premeditation. It's sinful schemes. This was not placed in the Bible so we can rationalize our own sins, by the way, that we can diminish our own sins. We can't say, gee, I'm not as bad as David, or the other end of the spectrum, Oh, why, why bother? If a man after God's own heart like David could do this, then what hope is there for me? No, that's not it. This chapter serves as a warning that our walk with the Lord, we can never take, take a day off. We have to walk with the Lord daily. If this was a Greek tragedy, it would be done in three acts and we'd be without hope. And although this is a tragic chapter, it doesn't leave us hopeless either. So as we approach this particular passage in scripture, I like to look at it in terms of what happens to David and in terms of relationships. Let's look at this chapter as far as a relationship with three people. And that's Bathsheba, and that's Uriah, and of course that's God. And also in terms of how David would fall, if you take a look at this particular chart that I've made, it shows the downward trend that will take place. First temptation, and then deception, and then consternation, and then desperation. But then the chart kind of flows back up, where there's confrontation, which leads to repentance and reconciliation in 2 Samuel 12. And so we come to 2 Samuel 11 verses one through five, and um, we read the following. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. And then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. 
So let's go back to verse 1. We see it's springtime when the kings go out to battle. Wars at that time were fought in the spring. Uh, winter months were cold and rainy and uh, rather treacherous. Uh, big campaigns, very difficult and hazardous. They just didn't fight then. But they did fight in the spring. But notice what happens. David remains in Jerusalem. And he turns over his command to Joab, a person who's treacherous in his own right, a very capable commander, to fight the Ammonites. If you take a look at the map, you see where Jerusalem is and where the kingdom of the Ammonites are. And they, are, they have besieged Rabbath. David always led from the front, like so many of the other generals did. But now he has taken off his battle armor. And I must say, he probably took off his spiritual armor as well. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may destroy. And notice that David, of course, got up out of his bed after overlooking, and he's overlooking Jerusalem. Let's take a look at that picture there. And he's from the palace, and the palace is a place of peace and luxury. It's quite opposite from the battlefield, isn't it? David's leading a life of comfort, but this palace would become a curse. It would become his own spiritual battlefield. In fact, the verb form or the word he walked suggests a pacing back and forth. Perhaps David had an uneasy feeling about himself. Perhaps his, he was thinking about the soldiers out in the battle. Perhaps he was thinking about Joab and how he was leading the army. He was uneasy. He was worried about them, perhaps, or perhaps... He had an uneasy feeling because he wasn't where God wanted him. David is idle. As William MacDonald stated, times of idleness are often times of greatest temptation. And of course, he's looking over and he sees a woman and she's very beautiful who was bathing. Let me just say this, particularly for our gentlemen and maybe the ladies too. You know, it's not that first look. It's that second look. And I'm not going to speculate on Bathsheba's intentions here. That's for another day. But we can't discern David's intentions. Because in verse 3, he sent someone to find out about her. And he got his answer. She's Bathsheba. She's a daughter of Iliam. She's a wife of Uriah the Hittite. And that should have closed the matter right there. It should have closed the matter right then and there. But it didn't. He should have run off the roof. He should have run as Joseph did. And if we see with Joseph, with Potiphar, how he, how he ran in Genesis 39, 9, and 10. How can I do such a thing, a wicked thing, and sin against God? And though she spoke day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. She caught him by his cloak and he said, she said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. That's what David should have done. He should have run. Um, Alan talked about Abigail last week. Beautiful wife, intelligent wife. Should have run to her arms. And that would have closed the matter, but he didn't do that. You know, this particular passage of scripture has been um, alluded to even by literary figures. William Shakespeare said, "'Tis one thing to be tempted, another thing to fall." David sins. He gives in to his lustful desires. He's, he brings Bathsheba to the palace. He commits adultery. There's not a lot of uh, words here. It's only a, a couple of sentences. 
but it sure has an impact and will have an impact, a long impact, uh, a treacherous impact on David's life. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time, but most importantly, he made the wrong decision. And as more than one writer stated, it's not about his physical location. It's more about his spiritual condition at this time. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 12 to 13. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No detention, temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, you'll also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. There was a way out here. David never took it. David thinks this affair is over, too. We'll call it an affair for now. This one-night stand, this politician's uh, peccadillo. But God thinks otherwise. God calls it adultery. God calls it sin. And David thinks his sin is hidden. But in the words of uh, Louis Sperry Schaefer, hidden sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. And of course, those three faithful words in verse 5. I am pregnant. And throughout the centuries, I'm sure this has happened many, many times. Adultery, affair, a tryst, and I am pregnant. What to do then? Sometimes the heart wants what it wants. Sometimes the heart gets what it wants. But there are times, and certainly in this one, when the heart doesn't want what it gets. And so what does he have to do? Well, David has to go, now he's from this temptation part of his life to the deception part of his life. And he puts into effect uh, a series of plans. And uh, we have to mention this. If David was an ordinary king, a pagan king at that time, this affair would have been over. This situation would have been done. Bathsheba probably would have been brought to the palace. She may have been exiled. She may have been banished. She may have been made a wife. Uh, she might have been even killed. But David is no ordinary king. He's God's anointed. And so we look at plan number one, deception. So what's the first plan? Recall Uriah from the front, from the battle. And so we read in verses 6 through 9, so David sent his, this word to Joab, uh, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent with him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants, and he did not go down to his house. Under this pretense about asking about Joab, about asking about the war, about asking about the soldiers, really this is all a cover-up. This is a pure cover-up tactic. And the man who was so compassionate, so compassionate with Jonathan son Mephibosheth, he's showing a total lack of compassion here, isn't he? I'm thinking even the hypocrisy of sending a, a gift with Uriah. But Uriah doesn't fall for it. He sleeps at the entrance of the palace, probably with the king's servants. And so now, what do we do? He's got to put plan two into effect. And plan two, uh, he's encouraging Uriah to go home after his long journey. 
We see this in verses 9 and 10. Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace uh, with the servants. He went down to the house. And then verses 10 and 11. And David was told, Uriah did not go home. And he asked, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? But Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Uriah is loyal to David. In fact, he was one of his mighty men, 37 men who were the most, I, I call them the elite forces, uh, the most loyal warriors, an elite soldier, if you will. And he's loyal to his fellow soldiers. That's where his heart is. They're intense sleeping there, all the discomforts, if you will, of life. How could I possibly take in the comforts of my home uh, and sleep with my wife? Uriah is a man of integrity. Everything that David isn't at this point in his life. He has a soldier's heart. He would defend David and did defend David and Israel. He's going to remain faithful to his duty. In fact, one other thing too, Uriah married a Jewish girl. He was a pagan. I would, I don't think it's a stretch that he was a, a proselyte here uh, and following uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He married a Jew, a Jewish girl. Um, Uriah is everything. Is uh, He's probably the David that David should be at this point, but he's not. So this plan fails too. And finally, we get to another plan. Well, Plan one, plan two, or plan A and plan B didn't work. David, who's still in this deception stage, has to come up with another idea. And if you take a look at verses 12 and 13, it says, And then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and he drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. Again, foiled. Uriah did not enter the home. He did not, he had not been with his wife, and um, he gave David strong conviction on why he wouldn't. I, in fact, I even wrote this down. I, I, it's kind of a little bit of a rhyme. This is a man of steel whose loyalty is real. Um, and David realizes that he is. He's a well-disciplined soldier. But he tells him, stay one more day, which was a lie because he didn't. It was actually another day. Come to dinner. Perhaps if I can get his inhibitions, uh, his inhibitions might be uh, compromised with drink. And he succeeds in it. Uriah does get drunk, but he doesn't go home. He never breaks his honor code, that military honor code. What a stark contrast between the two. A man of honor and David, a man of dishonor at this point in his life. And so now we get from deception to consternation and from consternation to desperation. The word consternation, one of the definitions is this, a sudden alarming amazement or dread that results in utter confusion or dismay. And that's what David is right now. He is out of reasonable options, and so he's going to turn to the unreasonable. This man who was fearless in battle 
is gripped with fear because what's, what possibly could happen? This uh, sin with Bathsheba could be exposed. And so he puts his final plan into play and, in verses 14 through 17. And starting with verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he could be struck down. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. This plan shakes us, doesn't it? We're talking about a man after God's own heart? This is a desperate time. And David participates in unthinkable, desperate measures. He writes a letter to Joab. Here's a little artist rendition of it, a famous painting. And that letter, he's gonna send it to Joab and he's gonna carry it himself. Basically what he's carrying is his, is his own death certificate and he's carrying it to his own executioner, Joab. He's sent to the front, right in the center of the battle where the fighting is the most dangerous, it's the most intense. And basically what would happen is this, is that Joab and his army would flank Uriah and then withdraw. And that would leave them, Uriah smack in the middle of the battle where the archers, particularly the archers of the Ammonites can do their attack. And tragically, that's exactly what happened. And even more tragically, there's some of David's mighty men who are also caught up in this. And Joab, who's more than capable of carrying out David's dirty schemes, uh, we know about his life. Uh, he's, he killed Abner. He would kill Amasa. He, he killed Absalom. Um, I was thinking if your name starts with an A, stay away from, from Joab. But this is real collusion. And this, it's interesting how sin makes strange bedfellows because there were times, I think, when David tried to kind of dismiss himself from Joab, but when he needed a dirty work to take place, who does he call on? He calls on Joab, and Uriah is killed. He's killed by proxy, legitimately, if you will. But it's a murder. It's a murder. It's as if David took the sword and stabbed Uriah right in the back himself. It's a, it's a sad irony when you think about it. It's a sad irony because when David was a servant to King Saul, he had a conscience. He wouldn't take King Saul's life, even though he could have, because he realized that he was God's anointed. And yet as king, he had a faithful warrior, a faithful soldier, loyal to him, yet he has him killed. And so in the following verses, verses 18 through 25, um, Joab sends word back with a messenger to David to give him the word about the battle. And in that particular uh, passage of scripture, in 18 to 25, thinking of course that David might be upset about how the battle went, what is going to happen is this, um, to soften the blow of the battle, if you will, verse 24 says, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Well. That's the word, those are the words that David really wanted to hear. And he rationalizes afterwards in some of the other verses saying that uh, Uriah's death, you know, it's just part of the casualties of war. 
uh, if you could read those verses. Um, it talks about men are going to die, but press on with the attack, he tells them. He sounds pious. He sounds almost comforting. Uh, but technically, it's a desperate attempt to bury his own guilt. It's a desperate attempt to taking this fatalistic approach about the trials and travails of war. But it's truly a cover-up. It's truly a cover-up. And a weight has been taken off his shoulders. Or has it? He's off the hook. Or is he? Again, when we sin, and we don't confront sin right away, and we all can speak from experience about that, each and every one of us, it could take us down to a place we never dreamed we can go. If we're not careful, if we're not alert, it could be an awful ride. And it is awful for David right now and will be. How many times have you said this? If I only knew. I know I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And um, there were times when I said, if I only knew. And I think many of us can say that. I think David, at this particular point, um, he's not saying that yet. But I do think that if he only knew about what would happen at the end from the beginning, he probably would have, wouldn't have participated in this. And so we come to this particular picture, and you can see Uriah there in the center of the battle, this artist's rendition, uh, being killed. It said uh, in verse uh, 26 and 27, um, the scripture says, And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Bathsheba mourns over the death of Uriah. David marries her, and he is looking good as far as the public is concerned. This was kind of a noble gesture, and uh, he's taking a, a widow, uh, the widow of a warrior, one of his faithful men, if you will, and he's going to marry her. And I wonder if the public might have thought that too. You know, look, how, look at our David, what a hero he is. He, uh, he cares for the widows. He cares for his soldiers. Um, and up to now, and up to this point, uh, things are going still well for David. And up to now, we haven't heard from God. In fact, this is the first reference about God in the entire chapter. And that's at, it's at the end, the last verse. But God has stood by watching. He's witnessing every scene, every sin. He knows the plot. He knows all the plans. He knows all the intents of the heart of every person who is involved in this situation. And God is not pleased. And so now we get to confrontation. And if you take a look at verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, we can quickly read these. But the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there, was, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and he grew up with him and his children, and shared his food and drank from his cup and slept, even slept with his, in, in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And now the traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrain from taking one of his own sheep or the cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man 
and prepared it for the one who had uh, come to him. And in verse 5, we see this. David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You know, from David's viewpoint, this problem with Bathsheba and his pregnancy seemed over, but it's not. He's, he thinks he's going back to business as usual, but he can never go back to normalcy because he's, no, he's an anointed king. He's not a pagan king. And you think about it, up to this point, David has committed multiple sins and has broken multiple commandments. Perhaps the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, the ninth, the tenth, tenth commandment. And how does God deal with him? Actually, this is about a year later because the son was born to David and Bathsheba. He's yet to acknowledge his sin. He's not done acknowledge it to himself. He's not acknowledged it to God. And then, of course, we see this situation. He sends the prophet Nathan, and he comes unannounced. And his reaction, David had a sense of, uh, of justice. It was aroused. He doles out uh, retribution, uh, a fourfold restitution that he had. Uh, and then also this, kind of over the top. Didn't need to do it here. He talked about the death penalty for this person. Uh, and it, it's funny because he said he had no pity on him. Ironically, did, uh, did David have pity on Bathsheba or Uriah on her family? Uh, no. David is so consumed with his own self-deception here, he doesn't realize he's the person, the man in the story. It's a form of projection um, where you repress your own guilt and your own shame. And the overreaction to the law here, because if a man stole, a, uh, a person stole a lamb, they only had to, the restitution was to return four lambs in return, not the death penalty. But uh, I will say this, he still has this knowledge of the, Old Testament scriptures, as one writer said, he knew the words of the Bible, but he was distant from the author at this time. Nathan then plays the master psychologist, because in verse 7, in one of the most incriminating statements in all the Bible, he says the following, and I put it in the King James Version. I think it has more emphasis there for some reason, for me anyway. Thou art the man. Thou art the man. Can you imagine but he must have felt, David, at that point. We can only imagine how he must, must have felt when now he's been exposed. And then later on in verses um, 7 through 12, uh, we, there's, I call it a series of views and eyes, uh, eyes and views, because uh, Nathan, speaking for God, talks about what God said. Says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your, your master's house to you. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. All this, um, uh, if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. How often, you know, God wants to give us more. I've given you this abundant life, David. I could have given you more. And how many times that we, our own sin stifles God from giving us more of an abundant life? And in verse nine, he says, why did you despise the word of the Lord in doing what is evil in, in his eyes? It's one of those questions where there is no answer. It's actually one of those questions where no answer is the answer. For those of you who are parents out there, you know what I'm talking about. Your child does something that's, that's wrong. And then you ask the question, why did you do this? And your child doesn't have an answer. 
That answer is the answer by not answering. So David's exposed and God's not allowing him to run from it. Where's this blame cast on David, on David alone? Isn't that the way with our own sins? We can rationalize all we want. And we live in this rationalization society today. People defend they, uh, every evil work, every evil deed, every evil word, every simple action. They rationalize about it. But God calls it what it is. He calls it sin. Doesn't dismiss it to sin. Uh, David's shattered. He's brought low. Uh, he's brought to a place of meekness now. Once was great. Now he's meek. And what does David do? Well, uh, David is told that the sword will never leave his house. This thing that he did uh, under in, in secret is now going to be brought in daylight. There's a couple of things that were going to take place later on in this life. And what does David do? David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. His response is not wordy. His response is not lengthy. It's actually one of those things where we talk about where less is more. One of the writers said, a man puts away his own sin when in sincerity he confesses it. That makes it possible for God also to put it away. Because Nathan replied, he said, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. See, the heart of David is really on full display here. And though he's not perfect, but he's come to his spiritual senses, drawn by God to a place of remorse, a place of confession, and a place of repentance. David's a living example of Romans 5.25. But where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so we come to a couple of Psalms. And if, if you really want to know about David's spiritual struggle, read Psalm 32, about his confession, and Psalm 51. See, because you're under sin, there is oppression. We have to admit that. When you sin and sin greatly, you're oppressed. In verse 51, uh, it says, uh, 51, 4, 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justify when you judge. And then verse uh, 1 of uh, Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Verse 5, and then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And all this, David was preeminently revealed as a man after God's own heart. Uh, other men who, had, who may have been uh, guilty of such a failure, um, they would have defended their actions. They may have even killed Nathan for giving the word there. But uh, this was no ordinary man. This is a man after God's own heart. David was forgiven. He was reconciled. He was restored to a right relationship with God. Yet, you must, we must say, God forgave him. He's restored to that right relationship. But he allowed some of the consequences of David's sin to remain and play out for the rest of his life. So how's the story apply to us in 2020? This is thousands of years ago, and here we are still talking about David. How does that apply to us? Well, in my preparation for today's message, I found so many different examples, applications. There's so many. I mean, it could be a, a Bible study for over a year. And I, I just like to narrow them down to, uh, to four. So here's, here's some of the things that we have to be careful of. 
I, I think warnings, I think applications. Um, and the first one is this, and that is, as Christians, we're not immune from falling because of past success against sin. Gene Getz in his book, How You Feel Like a, When You Feel Like a Failure, said the following, uh, the best of men and the best of women are capable of sinning in great ways and can fail God miserably. It's those words from Gene Getz, fail God miserably. You know, David's sin came after one of his longest success periods of his life. It's about 20 years. But it was then that he was overcome with temptation and lust for Bathsheba. Now, he experienced God's forgiveness, but there were consequences for that. David's children would be grief to him for the rest of his life. His family would be in constant conflict. Uh, his wives would be stolen and violated by Absalom. And his sin is basically made public. And although our failure, and I know we're all thinking, I'm not like David, and I said we can't rationalize, can't minimize this or diminish it, and although our failure may be nowhere near David in 2 Samuel 11, we should never take an attitude that we're insulated from such things. We all have weaknesses. We all have sins that beset us. Mine might be different from yours. But at the same time, we've been able, and we might have been successful and have been successful and able to overcome those sins through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of our God. But we've got to remind, be reminded, and I've been reminded this just recently, those sins can raise their ugly head at any time. Secondly, temptation can turn into sin, and we need to beware. You know, before an act becomes an act, it's a thought, and that thought can turn into a desire, and that desire, of course, is put into action. There's intent that can go into, um, into action, and if we intend, uh, even by intending to sin, the Lord said, we've already committed that sin. Matthew 5, 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. See, David looked and saw a woman and he, that he lusted for, and he didn't see what was ahead of him. He didn't realize how, how deep he would fall into sin. He never allowed, uh, even contemplated what the consequences for this would be. All he saw was a beautiful woman. So we need to be uh, careful about, about uh, thinking that uh, it's just a small sin. No, temptation can turn into something great. And then number three, we're always on the battlefield. We need to be self-controlled and alert. We know that the enemy, the devil himself, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour, destroy. David, you'll recall, put himself off. He took himself off the battlefield in the war against the Ammonites. He took off his battle armor. And in so doing, he also took off his spiritual armor. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13 tells us this. For we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authority, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And here's 13. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. David spent more time covering up his sin than staying out of sin. And we need to be very careful about that too. We need to stay on the battlefield. This world is a battlefield. And the, we have a greater chance of staying out of sin by staying on the battlefield and resisting the devil. In fact, James 4, 7 tells us that exactly. Uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And finally, number four, reconciliation and restoration are available through repentance. 
what David did, it was depraved. Uh, we can't minimize it. We can't trivialize it. I mean, sin is ugly in the eyes of God. Sin is abhorrent in the eyes of God. It's out of the pit of hell. And God was displeased. He didn't dismiss David's sin until he recognized it, he acknowledged it, and he confessed it, and he repented of it. God was displeased, but he did something about David's sin, and he did something about our sin. He gave us his son, willingly, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who was sinless, altogether lovely, to die on the cross at Calvary to pay the penalty for our sin, a sin debt that we can never pay and that we owe greatly. Sin is awful. Sin is vile. Sin is heinous. And it took the death of his own son to reconcile us to himself, to God. Yes, David repented and God forgave him, and it demonstrates his great love for us that no one is beyond redemption, not David and not us. And if you're in a sinful state right now, you know, now's the time, especially if you're a Christian, you know, if you confess your sins, God is gracious and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I may say, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, but you feel the burden of sin on your, the weight, you feel oppressed. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are laden in heavy burden, and I will give you rest. I implore you to ask Jesus Christ to come into your heart and to be the, his, the Savior and Lord of your life. And as a result of that, you'll have a new life here and, and a life eternity of eternity with him in heaven. You know, let me just finish by saying this in, in, in Psalm 32, 1 again. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is, recovered, is, is covered. David, a man after God's own heart? Yes. Yes, he is. And the question is, are you a man? Are you a woman after God's own heart? Perhaps we can go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, our Father, again, we just thank you again for who you were and what you've done for us. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, your dear son, who died on the cross for Calvary for our sins and our salvation. We don't deserve it, but you love us so much. And you showed it here in this passage. You didn't allow David to, uh, you didn't dismiss his sins, but you brought him to yourself and he repented. And we just thank you that uh, while repenting of our sins, we can come to you and have a right relationship with you. We thank you again for the messages that we have heard this summer on this series. We ask that it be applied to our hearts. We ask that we would uh, walk uh, circumspectly in this world that, you, that we would never be taken off the battlefield and, uh, and that whenever there is temptation, Father, that you would give us always a way out, as your word tells us. Again, we're so grateful. We give you thanks and praise. We thank you for the love that you have for us. We pray this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.